Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, as Georgia schools respond to rising coronavirus cases, well, there's one local district that's offering free COVID-19 testing for staff, students, and families. I'll speak with Marietta City School Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. Plus, how Black-owned businesses are coping during the pandemic and how new diverse startups can create social impact. And speaking of diversity and inclusion, coming up, it's on the agenda for Dragon Con this weekend. We'll talk about all that, those conversations and more. But first this, Georgia can expect heavy rain and wind gusts in the next couple of days as Ida makes its way inland after strike Louisiana. Matt Senna is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. Main threat for us is going to be the potential for some very heavy rain across the far northern part of the state. And the potential by early tomorrow morning, some potential for an isolated uh, tornado and some of these uh, storms that come through. Now, of course, Ida has weakened to a tropical storm after leaving New Orleans without power yesterday. The National Weather Service says in Georgia there is a potential for flash flooding and possibly, now brief, spin-up tornadoes today through tomorrow. We'll keep you updated through all of that. The metro Atlanta area is predicted to get between an inch and an inch and a half of rain by Wednesday. The worst of the storms will be concentrated in the northwest portion of the state. By the way, from Georgia Power, we've learned that they've already started sending crews to the Mississippi coast to help with restoration. And in other news from our WABE newsroom, the man accused of killing eight people in Atlanta area spa businesses appeared in Fulton County Court today. Robert Long faces a possible death penalty as well as hate crimes and domestic terrorism charges. Long already pleaded guilty to murder charges in Cherokee County, where he shot and killed four people, in Fulton County, where he allegedly shot and killed four more people. Now, most of the victims were of Asian descent. And District Attorney Fani Willis has maintained she plans to seek the death penalty. She addressed the media earlier today following Long's court appearance. I want the Asian community to know Um, in all of the community, if you're Hispanic, if you're African-American, if you're a woman, if you're poor, if you're uneducated, if you are very wealthy, if you are Caucasian, it does not matter. Lady Justice is finally blind. Every single person in this community has value, and we will fight for them as hard as we would fight for any victim. And Willis stood firm that the alleged hate crimes were racially motivated. And I am very comfortable in my decision to create, to request sentencing enhancements based on the fact that race and gender played a role. And D.A. Willis estimates a capital case like this could take up to three years to complete. And we appreciate that audio coming from uh, Channel 11 here in Atlanta. In other news, DeKalb County continues to get more residents vaccinated 
More than 2,000 people got the shot this past Saturday at the Mall of Stonecrest. In addition to the vaccine, they all received a $100 gift card, too. Not bad. People lined up in the parking lot as early as 4 a.m. And this is all part of DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman's effort to get 50 percent of eligible residents vaccinated. Right now, the county stands around 47 percent. This is the fourth time the county has used federal stimulus money to offer these financial incentives. And finally, get your tailgate on, folks. College football is back, vaccinated or not, for the fans, depending on your team. Still, this weekend, here we go, UGA travels to Clemson. Georgia Tech plays host to Northern Illinois. Morehouse travels to the University of West Alabama. Georgia State will welcome Army. Now, this is just my Rose Scott prediction. That could be interesting. Panthers might shock them. Don't go put any money on the game. I'm just saying that could be interesting. Clark Atletta heads to Livingstone College. Good luck to all. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR is always on Rose Scott. Yes, Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. It is one of the biggest weekends for the city. We know usually there's a big college football game at the stadium. Black Gay Pride takes place. And also, of course, the annual Dragon Con Convention. And as we all know, this time last year, not much was taking place Labor Day weekend. And Dragon Con was virtual. And while the pandemic continues, this year, the yearly gathering will take place, but with some strict COVID-19 protocols. But this fantasy sci-fi and all the genres related convention will go on. And that includes a continuing approach to implementing more diverse content and, as they call them, tracks for the Dragon Con attendees. Dan Carroll is the director of media engagement and Jarvis Sheffield is director of the diversity and inclusion track. And Jarvis is also the founder of the Black Science Fiction Society. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Rose, for having us. Jarvis and Dan, let's begin here. Is it fair to say that in years past, Dragon Con had a diversity and inclusion problem as it relates to some of your, I guess, tracks or or forums, and unintentional or not? Is that a fair assessment, Dan? I, I'm going to uh, turn this over to Jarvis. Right? Wait, wait, we can tear it over to Jarvis. You've been with Dragon so- Con for uh, how, how long? Well, okay, here's what I'm going to say. DragonCon has always striven to be the place where anybody can find refuge, anybody can find a place to celebrate the things they like, and that goes all the way back as long as I've been coming to DragonCon. DragonCon has been a gay-friendly place, a place where uh, minorities can find expression. Uh, We have gone out of our way, uh, and not a not like some bad way, but we have made an effort to make sure that DragonCon was going to be the place where everybody is safe, regardless of sex, gender. And for me personally, I I know 
the effect of our disability services to make sure that DragonCon is a place for everybody to enjoy things. But but I'm going to say that one thing DragonCon realized was that including these efforts and elements wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And we needed to have that focus. And that is a better time for me to turn it over to Jarvis. <laughs> so, Dan, you're saying not only just diverse, diversity and inclusion in terms of access for all in terms of attendees, but also the content that you're providing. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I think one thing I've noticed, I've been a fan for a real long time, Rose, and you know as well as I do, there was not as much material out there. There was not enough content that was showing the representation, and, and representation does matter. And I, uh, I, I know myself, you know, I've come to a great understanding of what has changed from my youth mm-hmm. through the 80s into the 90s and to now. Uh, and I just think it's amazing All right. what's out there. Jarvis, now it's on you through your lens. <laughs> through my lens, um, after talking, I've just been with DragonCon for four years. Um, I've been a fan of DragonCon for a number of years, but I'll echo what Dan said. It's always been inclusive. However, when DragonCon created the diversity track, which I think is the first diversity track of, of any con, mm-hmm. uh, it was an intentional safe space so that everyone could be represented. And that was back in, I think, 2018 when you all debuted your diversity and speculative fiction and li- literature fandom fan track, if I remember correctly. And full disclosure, I moderated one of your your forums as it relates to diversity, and I think uh, women writers in science fiction. So you all awesome. have, yeah. Now, awesome. I, I don't have a science fiction story inside of me yet, but you know, I'm working <laughs> on it. Well, it's in there. You just got to bring it out. It's in there. You know, it's interesting because I remember a number of years ago and I spoke to Erica Alexander, an actress who oh. she and her husband, Tony, were part of the they, the graphic it was a graphic novel. And she talked about the challenges of trying to get science fiction and, and fantasy literature, trying to attract a publisher, also trying to get it beyond just a book as it relates to animation and things like that. Jarvis, is there still some challenges that people of color face in this arena that perhaps their white counterparts don't? Hmm. That, um, I think that's that goes without saying. However, we have to uh, continue to push forward and not let... Um, obstacles stop us. I was talking to several people. We have to hit it on both ends, both pushing mainstream to do their part in making things diverse, as well as ownership like um, Erica's doing with her comic book, Mm -hmm. uh, Concrete Park. Have you all, and and Dan, you may know this, or Jarvis, you may know this, have you all seen an increase? And I don't know if you track this in terms of your attendees. I don't know if you can just gauge it by walking around. But have you seen a more diverse uh, in terms of ethnicity, race, in terms of those attending DragonCon over the years? Oh, most most definitely. Dan, what do you think? Most definitely. You can can walk into DragonCon. I tell people it looks like um, you're, you're in ready player one and so there's <laughs> your living player uh, that that video game uh movie but there's you see everything and uh all races all sizes all colors and it, it's wonderful to see um people save up all year 
to be able to afford to go to Dragon Con. People work on their cosplays all year long and spend a lot of money mm -hmm. to come out here and and show their, their work. And over the years, you can just look at the pictures or look at the videos. It's been exponential in terms of participation from virtually everyone. Dan, what do you think? I think I, I think uh, Jarvis obviously nailed a lot about what we're trying to do at DragonCon and what we're achieving at DragonCon. But I, I also think that it's reflections of the larger world and especially the larger geek world because we've seen in the past, I'm going to say 15 years since I started coming to DragonCon, we've seen much rep greater representation and uh presentation from women creators from black creators from creators who are non-standard um hispanic creators not the not st non-standard but the people who weren't getting a break mm -hmm. 30 years ago 20 years ago they're making a voice for themselves and they're making themselves heard and they're making fans and that's naturally going to be reflected in dragon talk well, Jarvis, let's get into what folks can expect. You all have this diversity and inclusion track. What's taking place? Okay, we have programmed to cover everything from race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, nationality, citizenship, uh, religion, sexual orientation, ability, or age. And we have um, a number of... Um, panels that we have each day. I am proud to say that DragonCon has facilitated this uh, diversity track, which makes it completely unique from any other event. Normally, other events, you go to them and you, you might have a diversity panel. And then once that's over, after that hour, everybody goes back to normal. <laughs> that's <But> it. Dragon, <laughs> yeah, and that's it. Nice. See you later. See you. Catch you next year. But at DragonCon, we have programming the entire time, both uh, virtual and in person. So um, it makes it really unique. And then we also like to party. We have parties virtually every night. We have one big party um, uh, on Thursday nights. And then uh, throughout the other nights, we have more intimate gatherings like a sketch party. We have a paint party and even a game night. So there's a more intimate setting for those that don't want to be around the big, big crowds and just need something unique to do. And so we have a lot of that going on. So I'm, I'm really excited about this year. And Dan, before I let you all go, is be, we've been talking about the diverse, diversity and inclusion track, but we got to remind folks, too, y'all have some COVID-19 protocols in place. So you just can't roll up in there and just say, oh, I'm here. Yes, we do, Rose. And, and we needed and our fans needed for DragonCon to come back because there were so many people missing something in their life because of dragon con and that is probably our biggest reason for coming back but we also understood the reality of the world around us and we responded uh the first thing we did was we took a cautious approach and we made sure that that when we announced our our policies and procedures we were working with the latest science we have always told people that masks matter and that the uh, the vaccines work. The science behind them is solid, and we have shared that. And then we we decided we were going to cap attendance uh, in 20, 2019. As you know, we had eighty five thousand attendees. We're looking at roughly half of that, somewhere in that range. 
uh, and we're we're anticipating that we will uh, uh, have full capacity before the event. Secondly, uh, we are requiring masks in all indoor spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, we're working very closely with our hotel partners and the city and health authorities to make sure we're we're, we're in getting that impact. And most recently, we have announced that we will be requiring either a vaccine card showing full compliance mm -hmm. and, or a recent test within 72 hours of when you pick up your badge. Uh, and we realized that we needed to go further. So we went ahead and we worked with CORE and Fulton County to provide free vaccines on site. Mm. Uh, and, and we understand people are concerned that there might be side effects of the vaccine, but if you're getting the first shot of Pfizer or Moderna, normally there's very little side effects mm. with that as a second shot. And, and then the other thing we're doing gross is we're uh, offering tests on site. Okay. All right. So that sounds good. Jarvis, <laughs> before I let you go, got a listener that wants to know who is your favorite sci-fi writer, person of color. And Dan, you can answer oh. that too. Oh, that's very easy. My favorite sci-fi writer of all time is Octavia, Octavia Butler. <laughs> I got you. I agree 100%. Dan, what about you? Do you have one? I'm going to go with with, with um, Dwayne Cook from, from uh, DC Comics. There you go. All right. Great talking to you, fellas. As always, I appreciate it. Dan Carroll, Director of Media Engagement, and Jarvis Shelfield, Director of the Diversity and Inclusion Track at Dragon Con, all about diversity and inclusion this year, as always. Appreciate y'all taking the time. Take care now. Thank you so much. Be safe. Bye-bye. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The numbers always tell the story. Since the onset of the pandemic being declared, keep in mind now the following number goes back to last year. 4,500,000 plus total child COVID-19 cases have been reported. Now, nationwide here, most recently between August 5th and August 12th, about 121,000 children tested positive for the coronavirus. This all coming from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association. And get this, that was a 23% increase over the prior week. We know that school districts, not only here in Georgia, but all of the country are implementing their own protocols. But the districts are also plagued by politics. So the question, what's working and what's not? Well, the answer varies. I'm joined now by Dr. Grant Rivera, superintendent of the Marietta City Schools. He's joined us so many times to talk about this. We really appreciate it. Superintendent Rivera, thanks for taking the time, as always. Thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you again. Let's begin here, because as of last week, and your district reported 127 students and I believe 26 staff with COVID-19. That is the latest information, correct? Yeah, correct. And you had one, I believe it was a middle school or a sixth grade academy that had a what might be considered a high number of cases. What can you tell our listeners about that particular school and where we are now? Yeah, I'll speak really for that school and across the entire district. We implemented a mask mandate because we saw increasing cases across our district. We felt like that was one more layer. Is it perfect? No. Is it guaranteed to stop? No. But it's one more layer that we can take to keep our students and our staff safe. You know, candidly, Rose, um, 
I feel like this year, I, I said everyone last year, I felt like we were fighting a virus this year. I feel like we're fighting each other. And the politics of it all, the dynamics of it all, it makes it incredibly challenging. At the end of the day, we've got to put every reasonable measure in place to try to keep our kids safe and then when possible in schools and learning. When the school year started, correct me if I'm wrong, you all were mask optional, correct? And then you that is cha- correct. And then you changed that to masks are now required. What type of, I'll use the word backlash, but what feedback did you receive from parents? Yes, some were in favor. No, some were opposed, I imagine. Yeah, you're candidly, Rose. I feel as if I get a lot of fan mail, and I wish the fan mail was about teaching and learning, but it's not. It's about COVID. It's about masks. It's about quarantines and really the, the, the polarization that exists now. For me, you know, our board asked me when we opened the school year to look specifically at Marietta City Schools data. And while that was somewhat of a reactive strategy, candidly, I, I, I respected that and I did it. We saw in our first nine days of school, we could confirm one case that was linked to school-based transmission in the first nine days. Mm-hmm. In the subsequent five days, we had 24 cases. And I think really quite candidly, the, the data was compelling enough that I said, listen, I'm, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to, to look at Marietta data, but I'm not willing to sit back and ignore it. So we made a shift to make mass mandatory, and I feel as if the data really drove that decision. You mentioned school-based transmission because I think that's also at the core of the argument, depending on which side of you on. Some people will say, well, these cases aren't school-based in terms of the transmission. You say, no, let's step back here and understand that this is a part of these growing number of cases, whether it's in the Marietta schools or, or the entire nation. You can't just say it's not school-based transmission that's driving these cases. Yeah, and I think, Rose, and I'll, I'll take your listening audience back to a year ago. Um, we had the opportunity last December and January to be the first school district in the country to partner with the CDC to study school-based transmission. A team of 20 experts who converged on Marietta City Schools to teach us how to, to track data to EpiLink, and obviously there was a lot of testing that went along with that. We learned through that process how to contact Trace in such a way that we could ask families reasonable questions. So, for example, and there's two, and I'll say briefly to your audience, there's one idea is we try to discern when was a child most likely just coming from home to school versus when is a child out and about doing other social activities? When are they at a church retreat? When are they at gymnastics? When are they at basketball? Um, and what we do is we try to discern between is there, first of all, is there other outside contact that could cause that? When that happens, we have to remove that as potential school-based transmission. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that becomes actually really obvious and somewhat simple, Rose, is that if I have one child sitting at a school table um, in kindergarten and the other three children around that child also test positive, we can start to see patterns where we can make reasonable decisions. And I think instead of ignoring the data, we have to respond. So when you give that information to those parents who were in opposition of the, the mask, What's their response? Or even educators. I don't want to just pick on parents or anyone for that matter. I mean, I th- that, you know, Rose, I feel as if we're fighting different battles by the day. You know, one day is the conversations around masks. And should we have, math, have masks or not? The next battle, I mean, really the email I got right before I started this interview with you is, should a child be quarantined if they're identified as a close contact from positive case? And if so, how long? Should we require a test for them to return? Or should we not? And I think really there are a lot of opinions on this, depending on which social media thread you follow, uh, which rabbit hole you go down. And I think for us, what I'm trying to do is step back and say, we are taking a reasonable approach guided by experts. Who am I to say that I know more than 70,000 pediatricians that are part of the American Academy of Pediatrics? You know, who am I to say that I know more than the health, health experts we're put in a position to guide us? So we try to have a degree of humility and deference to those experts. 
And again, just let the data guide the decisions and try not to let social media and Facebook dictate what we do as a school district. The last time we talked, I think back in January, the district was operating on a hybrid model. Is that still an option? We did. So we offered to our families. The answer is, is, is somewhat yes and no. I think the simple part is we did offer to our families, your child can come full-time in person or your child can go full-time virtual. I felt like families were owed that discretion. Mm-hmm. Um, now kids are, are 100% either in-person or 100% virtual. We've got some situations where kids will shift uh, depending on family dynamics and what have you. So yeah, we, we try to accommodate family needs. But what's different than last year is kids can't flip-flop back and forth by the day like they might have done last year. We're trying to get a little more stability for children and consistency for adults. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Grant Rivera. He's a superintendent of Marietta City Schools. And of course, we're talking about the COVID-19 and, and obviously and back to school uh, in per, in-person instruction. Early on, when you talked about the CDC and how important that was to offer COVID testing now, this partnership is continuing. You all are taking a step further. You're including families if they want to get tested. Is that true? Yeah, Rose, so I'll take you back two weeks ago. About two weeks ago, I, there were teacher, I, I had a kindergarten teacher who contacted me on a Sunday and she said, Grant, I've been sitting waiting for a test at Walgreens for seven hours. And I, 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 I can't, I, I don't know what else to do to get a test faster. We had families who were going out and purchasing for 50 or $100 kits to do at home. And this idea of health equity and access, I think was just falling apart in front of us. So we partnered with a local primary care physician uh, to offer COVID tests for students, staff, and families. We do it Monday to Friday, uh, 8 to 12 each day. We're looking to expand those hours. We did over 700 tests last week. And it was really guided, Rose, by the simple belief and the simple value. I can't wait on external people to fix an internal problem. I can't wait and assume that when I drive by a testing site and there's 100 cars waiting, um, that they're going to fix that problem so my kids can get back to school, my teachers can get back to class. So we really just took it upon ourselves. We found an external partner. Um, our central office staff is out there assisting um, with insurance and processing, moving cars and processing paperwork. We're doing everything we know to do because I don't feel like we can sit back and wait for somebody else to fix our problem. I want to focus on the educators and the staff for a moment because sometimes it, it appears they tend to get lost in the conversation because, listen, we're talking about the, live, the lives for everybody here. For your educators, and I know that we last year, we last year, last week we mentioned that uh, Decatur City Schools might become one of the first districts in this in the state to say, look, we're going to mandate the vaccines for educators and staff. Is that something that you all and the board would consider? So, Rose, I'll answer your question based on how I feel today. You know, nothing about COVID you can predict, so maybe things feel differently in the future. But Marietta has offered 13 different vaccination clinics on our campus for our staff, our students and our families. We have reason, We know that we have close to 70% of our staff who were vaccinated through us, plus anybody else who got vaccinated outside of what we offered. So we have a very high percentage of staff who are vaccinated. At this point, we are not having conversations and I'm not in a place where I wanna mandate a vaccine because I think that is a personal decision. Mm-hmm. I think if we started to see more adult transmission, then maybe there's a need to go back and revisit that. Um, maybe there's more education to help people understand why the vaccine matters. I'm trying to walk that fine line as an educator um, and not make a mandate for one real simple reason. Well, two simple reasons, Rose. One is I want to respect the decision of each person as opposed to have an employer mandate. But there's also a very practical reason, Rose. We don't have teachers applying for every position, every vacant position. Like we have a difficult time staffing classrooms. 
math teachers and special ed teachers don't grow on trees. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we potentially put a mandate in place that promises to lose valuable educators who are veteran, I think ultimately hurts children. So maybe we can allow people to have that discretion, encourage them to get it, but also at the same exact time, put safety protocols in place like masks and other things that create us from having vacancies that we can't fill in a pandemic when nobody really wants to walk into a classroom these days. So we're trying to balance it with the greatest degree of sensitivity, but I think the data is compelling. Meanwhile, obviously you all are in the business of educating, which is what you all do. How are the kids, have, how have they been adjusting to getting back in school? And as you walk around some of the school buildings, and I always start with the kindergartners. <laughs> how have yeah. they been? Yeah, well, Rose, I have a kindergartner. She uh, walked into that building for the first time this year and couldn't be happier. She doesn't care about wearing a mask. It's not that big of a deal to her. Um, it's interesting. I've been talking with teachers, kind of getting a pulse. Of, like, how are the kids a week or two or three in? And I've had multiple teachers who are veteran educators say to me, I've never seen the kids so engaged, so happy, asking such thoughtful questions, leaning in. I think these kids have been hurting for the last 18 months. And the idea that we could try to offer them, um, and in Marietta, 94% of our kids are in person consistently Monday to Friday. The fact that we can offer these kids um, an opportunity to get back in school where it feels like maybe what it used to, to some small degree, I think matters. And I think a lot of kids um, have missed the relationships, they've missed the camaraderie, and hopefully we can continue to do that safely. And finally, you have a town hall coming up on September 21st. How do you plan to maneuver around the message of not politics, but people as it relates to this pandemic and wearing a mask and all that? Yeah, so Rose, uh, we've offered, we offered a town hall two weeks ago. We'll offer another one in September. It's my effort to consistently engage the community I share with them the current data, I share with them our current protocols, and then I sit back and I answer questions. Um, and really for me, it's about the transparency and it's about over-communication. A lot of people can take issue and attack me personally or attack me professionally, but what they can't say is that we're not over-communicating and they're not transparently walking through the protocols and the data. Like that's my responsibility. We don't have to agree, but I think we have to over-communicate and be transparent. Dr. Grant Rivera, superintendent of the Marietta City Schools, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. We'll have you back. Thank you, Russ. Tell that kindergarten hang in there. It gets better. <laughs> Absolutely. I will. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Throughout August, there's been awareness regarding the nation's Black-owned businesses. Yes, it was Black Business Month, and amid the global health crisis, we all know, right? It has not been business as usual for any business owners, but Black-owned businesses have been disproportionately impacted. We know this. According to University of California, Santa Cruz, 41% of Black-owned businesses closed due to COVID-19 compared to 17% of white-owned businesses. And to put this also in perspective, according to the 2021 census on minority-owned businesses, out of all the businesses in the U.S., just under 125,000 are considered, quote, Black-owned. Well, join me now to talk more about this is Joy Womack, the founder and CEO of Goody Nation. I love that name. And Shani Godwin, the founder of Joy Economics. Joy, enjoy that name, too. Thank you all for taking time. I appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having us. Let's begin with a little background on your respective entities. Shani, I'll start with you. What's the backstory for Joy Economics? 
Backstory in a real brief nutshell is I started a marketing communications firm, Communicate USA, almost 20 years ago, a year after 9-11, pivoted through the mortgage crisis of 07-08, found myself at the top of the pandemic and lost 85% of my revenue. Million dollar business just kaput in one hour. And uh, through that climb and scale over the $1 million mark, really realized the stress that comes, um, that sucks the joy out of growing a business and use the opportunity in the pandemic to reinvent the business. And we're back on track in the black and on our way to two, two million plus thank God, but really um, opened up an opportunity to really inspire and teach women, especially women of color, how to grow and scale using the currency of joy as the way that they measure their success. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And Joey, let's talk about uh, Goody Nation. How'd that come about? Oh, long story. So we started out as a hackathon for good. And so we matched up skills-based volunteers with nonprofits to solve technology technology challenges and so hackathon for good being atlanta hip-hop goody goody mob goody hack <laughs> right and so we evolved to this thing called goody nation and and today currently we are a, a national nonprofit that's focused on closing what we call the relationship gap mm-hmm. for tech focused social entrepreneurs and the diverse founders all across the country you all heard those statistics i i gave you coming in when you think about how the pandemic has impacted not just all the businesses but when you break that down you you know, peel back the layers, so to speak. Shani, I'll start with you. The impact that this pandemic has had on Black-owned businesses, that's not lost on you. No, not at all. I mean, I, again, I'm, we're about to celebrate 20 years in business, and I had the wherewithal, the fortitude, and God gave me the vision to create Joy Economics as a cultural shift platform for our organization um, about four years ago. So at the top of the pandemic, at its height, I was sitting on an idea that I hadn't been able to activate and that's not always the case. You know, I'll be really honest with you. I can't even take the credit for us being here. I truly believe it was just God ordained. My CPA said, I have no clue how you kept this business afloat. You have crazy sick cash flow management skills. But when we unpack like what's truly needed to survive, it is truly a lot of foundational things that we had in place going into the pandemic plus the faith to keep going. So the day before that first PPP round vanished, if you didn't know how to move and maneuver and pivot, you were gonna get lost in the sauce. We we banked with a big major bank and I could see we were gonna be high and dry because that was not moving. So I called my CPA, she called in a few phone calls, got us with a small bank and Rose, it was crazy. We literally got the money the night before it ran out. And that was the first round PPP. So relationships matter, infrastructure matters, and knowing how to maneuver and get things done matters. Well, and Shani, sounds like you had that foundation. But Joy, as you know, too, and Shani, you know that for every, that doesn't apply to every small business. And particularly if you are considered what, maybe a mom and pop, or you just starting out. And also you're in that, that phase where you're still sort of feeling it out as you go. Joy, what did you hear from other small business owners, uh, minority-owned business owners, as what they were going through when this pandemic all started and continue yeah, to mean, go through. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do want to double down on Shani's point about relationships and how they matter. But what we saw from our founders um, was, you know, they didn't have some of the foundational skills to your point. And so, you know, even having a personal relationship with a, with a banker mattered. And so when it came time to activate these opportunities, you know, things 
things move slower than normal. Like, like I, one thing I learned during the pandemic was that um, access to information is is a true privilege. Like everybody knew a guy. I got a guy that can get you this or something's about to happen, just prepare. And so we saw that black founders in particular in Atlanta, small business owners um, were not as connected to the people in the know in which um, they really needed to be. And so we've been focused on making intentional connections to people that provide capital, to people that can provide strategic advice to them uh, and to people that can also offer up customers and things of that nature. Well, for someone listening, it says, okay, you all keep talking about partnerships, and that's great. But to even have partnerships, you got to, there has to be a beginning somewhere. You know, how do you begin to do that if you're just starting out? Because you're so focused on trying to get the product, trying to get the service, get the website. Do we have social media? Do I get my cousin to do the graphics for the, you know, what have you, the website? So, <laughs> and you, y'all know, we got to bring in family because we're on money to <laughs> Right. Capital is an issue. So, you know, how do you even begin to to where do you go to build these partnerships? Shani? I, I'll speak for myself. Um, you know, I, I started this business uh, when I was 27 years old. So I there's no way I had the networks and the knowledge and the know how just really had the confidence. I think it's important to remember, you know, a lot of us as black people and people of color, we're pulling up to the entrepreneurial table as first generation. And this game has been going on for years and years and years. And so one of the very early things we established from an infrastructure standpoint was getting certified as a minority-owned business through National Minority Supplier Development Council, and then also as a woman-owned business through uh, Women's Business Enterprise. If you're 51% woman-owned or 51% majority-owned minority, those um those networks are invaluable. Yes, they give you opportunities to compete for contracts, but when you know the stuff hit the fan last year, those were also my funnels of where information was coming to. I'm also um, very well networked in the Atlanta business community. So every single network in those years and years of showing up at conferences and events, and you know, we show up thinking, let me do a quick little elevator pitch and get the deal, but it's so much deeper than that. People have to know you, they have to trust you, and they have to be willing and wanting to help. So it's that no like trust factor that got people to answer my phone calls and got me moved and maneuvered and rerouted. And those relationships were not just people of color. It was my whole network from corporate to the small business to the anyone I knew um, that was able to ultimately help. But one of the first things we did was get certified. What about finding a mentor? Joey, I'll start with you. What about finding someone in this space to to sort of guide you you know did you have a mentor i have been i've been blessed to know a lot of people um in my entrepreneur journey over the past 20 plus years and i have i've had lots and lots of mentors and that's why we really baked it into our our program and so kind of even kind of going back to, to even to the previous question i know like many to, to shawnee's point many black founders are first-time founders but the thing is, with 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 black people in this country, like entrepreneurship is baked into our DNA. As my good friend uh, at the Small Business Administration, Natalie Cofield, will say that we're not new to entrepreneurship. We're we're true to this, right? And so everybody knows someone that sold something on the corner, or you know, someone's family member sold a freeze pop or whatever you call it in your area of the country, right? And so for us, one of the things that we do and we found success with is connecting founders to other people who've been there, done that, mm -hmm. for an assessment of where they sit relative to a few things, launching their product, 
their readiness to take on capital and their readiness to take on large companies as partners. And so what you see is that like if you think back to those those memes you see on Facebook around people working out, mm-hmm. like here's how I view myself, here's how other people view me in that reality. We found success with triangulating that difference to seeing how founders, you know, view themselves versus how mentors view them and then helping them create priorities and goals to level up. And so in the process of that assessment, um, uh, evaluate or that evaluation process, uh, relationships are are, go- are 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 developed between someone who can give you a one-off set of advice mm-hmm. for office hours, to turn into a coach, to turn into a, a mentor, and then eventually we've seen people turn to actual advisors for the company. And so, you know, Joey mentioned, you know, prof- all those about creating, you know, relationships. Now, Shawnee, I want to switch for a moment because you're saying we're going to do all that, but your movement also includes mental health. Yes. So, you know, there's there we are in a culture and I am effectively calling myself. I'm, I'm this is the part of culture that I am trying to cancel. I think particularly in communities of color, you know, as Joey said, access to cash matters. Um, but we get so focused on the million dollars or the financial goal that we can burn up all of our resources, all of our energy and all of our time scaling and growing. And in order to scale and grow, so you you mentioned Rose, people love to start a business and go straight into the marketing Mm -hmm. space. And that's my, my, my wheelhouse all day, but you know, great marketing can only stand on a good foundation. And so one of the things that got me when I grew and scaled over the million dollar mark, what nobody prepared me for was at the point that you're running a seven figure business, you better have that infrastructure right, or you are burning the midnight oil and burning yourself out. So we created Joy Economics as a a redirect to really get people to think about what makes them happy and start to redefine how we measure your success. I tell people I'd rather run a $200,000 company that is profitable than a $2 million company that's burning cash at a $3 million clip. Cause that's and stress and stressing stress. you out. <laughs> right. And what good is that to have the optics, the look, you know, to, to chase the bag, as we say, is it's going to keep you burned out and stressed. So it's just really a way to help people manage their mental health along the way, because at the point that you're burning, you know, your engine out, you're not even enjoying this thing that you're using to create wealth for your family, opportunity, et cetera. And so just a lot of good foundational business principles behind the scenes on that. And Joy, I want to give you an opportunity to take Goody Nation a little bit further because you all are also you're in this space of what you call social entrepreneurs, you know, or and I, I remember we did a, a some segments a while back on. Uh, you know, the conscious of capitalism. <laughs> I got a lot of emails yeah. about I got a lot of emails about that. But take it further and when you talk about social entrepreneurs and someone says, Okay, but Joey, can I make a little money with this social being a social entrepreneur? No, nah, yeah, for sure. And so we say all social entrepreneurs, we're we're referring to founders who want to make the world a better place while also building really quality, high quality businesses. So you think founders in the health space. You think founders in the education space, you think founders in the financial inclusion or fintech space and those working on sustainability, environmental, climate change and things of that nature. The interesting part about that is that for for many for for many black founders in particular, it's almost natural to us. And so because in many cases, an entrepreneur in general is simply just building 
a solution to a problem, usually they have experienced or witnessed themselves. And so for 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 African Americans, for black people in the US and in many cases Atlanta, like we've seen so many problems that we want to do something about it. So you see companies like Gooder, where the founder is Jasmine Crow, or Gap and focused on uh, or, or focused on um taking uh, excess food and redirecting it to people who are in need. You think uh, companies like Gava, where the, the founders can is black and all, helping diverse students going into the into into medical school be better prepared uh, for those opportunities so that we're developing the next generation of black doctors. So there is a huge opportunity. And these companies have the potential to be valued at 50 million, $100 million. So there's there's an ample opportunity, particularly in Atlanta, the home of civil rights, mm-hmm. to, to lead the nation as it comes to developing social entrepreneurs. As we wrap up, uh, those the, the statistics I've read coming into this, if you can look into your crystal ball the next year, Shani, I'll let you go first. Looking at how optimistic are you that I don't know how many of those 41% of minority-owned businesses will be able to come online, but how, the outlook you see for minority-owned businesses within this next year, because we're still in a pandemic. Well, yeah, Um you know, I'm I'm hopeful. You know, I I believe that all bad things can be turned around to good and for good. And I encourage people, and it's one of the ways we were able to kind of breathe life back into our business. And it's just really what we're all about with the Joy Economics Coaching Program is figure out the thing that you do that you do effortlessly. And you know it because it's the thing people ask you for over and over and over. In our business, that happened to be coaching and working with women entrepreneurs because people were asking for that mentorship. And start to pivot and move your business toward those things. And 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 when, you, when we did that, instead of trying to continue saving what was dying, that momentum began to shift. So like the old economy as we knew it is dead. Mm-hmm. And if you're still trying to serve that old economy, then your business is dying or has died. So mm-hmm. you've got to be able to shift and adapt your offerings, the best of who you are to this new economy, unfortunately, that we've found ourselves in. And when we've done that and seen and helped people through our Joy Economics program do that, then they breathe new life into it and it, it kind of comes back to life. All right, Joy Womack, I'll give you the last word. What do you think a year from now? I'm excited. I'm excited. I think what you're going to see in Atlanta among black entrepreneurs is those taking advantage of the creator economy, creating tools to help creators and taking content creators uh, themselves and turning them into the next generation of multi-million entrepreneurs. And what that means for the Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, overall metro Atlanta area, it's going to do, you know, wonders. So super excited for what's next. All right, Joy Womack, the founder and CEO of Goody Nation. Shani Godwin, the founder of Joy Economics. We'll have links to your sites on our website. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Good information. Inspiring messages. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other for that matter. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.